0: Welcome to Writers Off the Page, 40 Years of Tifa, produced by the Toronto Public Library. I'm Randy Boyagoda. In this episode, American writer Gloria Naylor reads a story that invites you in, maybe calls you out, among other things.
1: When there was lots of cotton here, and we bailed it up and sold it beyond the bridge, we paid our taxes to the US of A. And we keeps account of all the fishing that's done and sold beyond the bridge all the little truck farming. And later on, when we had to go over there to work, or our children went, we paid taxes out of them earnings. We pays taxes on the telephone lines and electrical wires run over the sound. Ain't nobody here about breaking the law. But Georgia and South Carolina ain't seeing the shine off a penny for our land, our homes, our roads, or our bridge. Well, they fought each other up to the Supreme Court about the whole matter, and it came to a draw. We guess they got so tired out from that they decided to leave us be, until them developers started swarming over here like sand flies at a Sunday picnic.
0: As you'll learn in a moment, for reasons beyond her control, but clearly important to her sense of cosmic literary timing, Gloria Naylor's very existence from the moment of her birth has had a strong connection to great women writers of past eras, namely Virginia Woolf and Gwendolyn Brooks. Naylor will explain why. But to be honest, another writer kept coming to mind as I listened to this searching and meaningfully meandering story originally recorded during Naylor's trip to Toronto in 1988. The writer that came to mind as I listened was Shakespeare, and specifically his play Measure for Measure. Scholars refer to it as one of his problem plays, insofar as it's clearly not a tragedy, a comedy, or a history play for that matter. It works on you because you never quite know where it's going, only that you want to keep following. The same is true with Naylor's story, whose layer upon layer of voice and perspective, combined with the shifting pronouns and modes of address, all culminate in a striking moment of simultaneous inclusion and exclusion. The story leaves us feeling intimately, imaginatively part of a complex Black community, still concealed in important ways from us, and from some of its own members. All of this comes through in what and how Naylor tells of that community's experiences. It's this set of elements and effects that left me with the same feeling I had when I first encountered Measure for Measure. If you're still curious what I mean, listen in and tell me what you think about Remo's Boy what he knows and doesn't know by the end of the story. Good luck coming up with a clear answer. That said, this kind of ambiguity is at odds, in some ways, with the striking clarity of Naylor's emergence in America's literary and public life. She came to national prominence suddenly and dramatically in 1982, with the publication of her first novel, The Women of Brewster Place. That novel cast a brave, unsparing, and caring eye on a community's poor, violent, broken life, and also its sources of resilience and hope, as seen, told, and experienced from a series of women's vantages. The book won the National Book Award and was later adapted into a televised miniseries under the imprimatur of Oprah Winfrey, who also featured in it. Thereafter, Naylor wrote and taught for a long time, reliably on very difficult issues that managed to challenge every segment of her readership. She also brought resolve and warmth to such matters, signaled, as you'll see, by the moment she kind of laughs to herself in the middle of reading this story. She likes how one of her characters laughs off death. She clearly admires that kind of courage in a poor, put-down black woman and invites her readers to do the same.
1: Thank you. Um, During the break, a lady leaned over and said to me, Are you Gloria Naylor? My God, you look so young. I said, I am never leaving this country, ever. When you get to be my age, look, you take what you can get. (laughs) I I think I'm probably a bit sensitive about it because I did turn 38 uh, this Monday, which January 25th, and that's also Virginia Woolf's birthday. And I happen to have been born in the same year that Gwendolyn Brooks won the Pulitzer Prize for Annie Allen. So between those two great writers, I have a lot to live up to and many years to do it in. I'm going to be reading um, from my latest novel, Mama Day, tonight, The Introduction. And Mama Day is a book that deals with the intangible, with belief in love and magic, anything which we cannot actually put our fingers upon. It calls upon the reader to suspend belief. And The Introduction deals with perhaps the most universal suspension of belief ball, and that's the convention of reading. First of all, the novel opens with a bill of sale for a woman in the 19th century. Tuesday, third day August, 1819. Sold to Mr. Bascom Wade of Willow Springs, one negress answering to the name Sapphira, age 20, pure African stock, limbs and teeth sound. All warranty against the vices and maladies prescribed by law do not hold forth. Purchaser being in full knowledge and affixing signature and witness thereof that said Saphira is half prime, inflicted with sullenness and entertains a bilious nature having resisted under reasonable chastisement the performance of field or domestic labor, has served on occasion in the capacity of midwife and nurse, not without extreme mischief and suspicions of delving in witchcraft. Conditions of sale, one-half gold tender, one-half goods in kind, final. This is the collective voice of the island. Willow Springs. Everybody knows, but nobody talks about the legend of Saphira Wade. A true conjure woman, satin black, biscuit cream, red as Georgia clay, depending upon which of us takes a mind to her. She could walk through a lightning storm without being touched grab a bolt of lightning in the palm of her hand, use the heat of lightning to start the kindling going under her medicine pot, depending upon which of us takes a mind to her. She turned the moon into salve, the stars into a swatling cloth to heal the wounds of every creature walking up on two or down on four. It ain't about right or wrong, truth or lies. It's about a slave woman who brought a whole new meaning to both them words soon as you cross over here from beyond the bridge. And somehow, some way, it happened in 1823. She smothered Bascom Wade in his very bed and lived to tell the story for a thousand days. 1823 married Bascom Wade. Bore him seven sons in just a thousand days to put a dagger through his kidney and escape the hangman's noose, laughing in a burst of flames. 1823. Persuaded Bascom Wade in a thousand days to deed all his slaves every inch of land in Willow Springs, poison them for his trouble, to go on and bear seven sons by person or persons unknown mixing it all together and keeping everything that done shifted down through the holes of time you end up with the death of bascom wade there's his tombstone right out by chevy's pass the deeds to our land all marked back to the very year and seven sons ain't miss abigail and mama day the granddaughters of that seventh boy the wild card in all this is the thousand days And we guess we put our heads together, we'd come up with something which ain't possible since Saphira Wade don't live in the part of our memory we can use to form words. But ain't a soul in Willow Springs don't know that little dark girls, hair all braided up with colored twine, got their 18 and 23s coming down. When they lean too long over them backyard fences, laughing at the antics of little dark boys who got the nerve to be breathing 18 and 23 with mother's milk still on their toes? And if she leans there just a mite too long or grins a bit too wide, it's gonna bring a holler straight through the dusky screen door. Get your bow subway from my fence, Johnny Blue. Won't be no early 18 and 23s coming here for me to rock. I'm still raising her. Yes, the name Sapphira Wade is never breathed out of a single mouth in Willow Springs. But who don't know that old twisted-lip manager at the Sheridan Hotel beyond the bridge, offering Winky Brown only $12 for his whole boatload of crow daddies, tried to 18 and 23 him if he tried to do a thing. We all sitting here, a hop, skip, and one Christmas left, Before the year 2000, and ain't nobody told him niggers can read now. Like the menus in his restaurant, don't say a handful of crawdaddies sprinkled over a little bowl of crushed ice is almost $12. Call it shrimp cocktail or whatever he want. We can count, too. And the price of everything that swims, crawls, or lays at the bottom of the sound went up in 1985, During the season we had that 18 and 23 summer and the bridge blew down, folks didn't take their lives in their hands out there in that treacherous water just to be doing it. Ain't that much 18 and 23 in the world. But that old hotel manager don't make no never mind. He's the least of what we done had to deal with here in Willow Springs. Malaria, union soldiers, sandy soil, two big depressions, hurricanes, not to mention these new real estate developers who think we're going to sell our shoreland just because we ain't fool enough to live there, started coming over here in the early 90s, talking vacation paradise, talking picturesque. Like Winky said, we'd have to pick their ass at the bottom of the marsh first hurricane blow through here again. See, they just thinking about building where they ain't got no state taxes. Never been and never will be, because Willow Springs ain't in no state. Georgia and South Carolina done tried, though. Been trying since right after the Civil War to prove that Willow Springs belonged to one or the other of them. Look on any of them old maps they hurried and drew up soon as the Union soldiers pulled out. And you can see that the only thing connects us to the mainland is a bridge. And even that got to be rebuilt after every big storm. They was talking about steel and concrete way back. But since Georgia and South Carolina couldn't claim the taxes, nobody wanted to shell out for the work. But anyways, all 49 square miles curves like a bow, stretching toward Georgia on the south end and South Carolina on the north. And right smack in the middle, where each foot of our bridge sits, is the dividing line between them two states. So who it belonged to? It belongs to us, clean and simple. And it belonged to our daddies, and our daddies before them, and them too, who at one time all belonged to Bascom Wade. And when they tried to trace him back and how he got it, found out he wasn't even American was Norway born or something. And the land had been sitting in his family over there in Europe since it got explored and claimed by the Vikings. Imagine that. So thanks to the conjuring of Safira Wade, we got it from Norway or theirs about. And if tax is owed, it's owed to them. But ain't no Vikings or anybody else from over in Europe come to us with the foolishness that them folks out of Columbia and Atlanta come with. We was being un American. And the way we saw it, America ain't entered the question at all when it came to our land. Safira was African born. Bascom Wade was from Norway. And it was the eighteen and twenty three and that went down between them two put deeds in our hands. And we wasn't even Americans when we got it, was slaves. And the laws about slaves not owning nothing in Georgia and South Carolina don't apply because the land wasn't then, and isn't now, in either of them places. When there was lots of cotton here, and we bailed it up and sold it beyond the bridge, we paid our taxes to the U.S. of A. And we keeps account of all the fishing that's done and sold beyond the bridge, all the little truck farming. And later on, when we had to go over there to work, or our children went, we paid taxes out of them earnings. We pays taxes on the telephone lines and electrical wires run over the sound. Ain't nobody here about breaking the law. But Georgia and South Carolina ain't seeing the shine off a penny for our land, our homes, our roads, or our bridge. Well, they fought each other up to the Supreme Court about the whole matter, and it came to a draw. We guess they got so tired out from that they decided to leave us be. Until them developers started swarming over here like sand flies at a Sunday picnic. Sure, we could have used the money and weren't using the land. But like Mama Day told em, we knew to send them straight over there to her and Miss Abigail. They didn't come huffing and sweating all this way in them dark garbiting suits if they didn't think our land could make them a bundle of money. And the way we saw it, there was enough land. Shoreline, that is, to make us all pretty comfortable. And calculating on the basis of all them fancy plans they had in mind, Amelia and Acre wasn't asking too much. Flap, <laughs> flap, flap. Lord, didn't them jaws and silk ties move in the wind? The land wouldn't be worth that if they couldn't build on it. Yes, sir, she told them. And they couldn't build on it unless we sold it. So we get ours now, and they get theirs later. You should have seen them coattails flapping back across the Sound with all their lies about community uplift and better jobs. Cause it weren't about, no, them now and us later. Was them now and us never. Hadn't we seen it happen back in the 80s on St. Helena, DeFusky, and St. John's? And before that, in the 60s, on Hilton Head, got them folks' land, built fences around it first thing, and then brought in all the builders and high-paid managers from main side. Ain't nobody on them islands benefited. And the only dark faces you see now in them vacation paradises is the ones cleaning the toilets and cutting the grass on their own land, mind you, their own land. Weren't gonna happen in Willow Springs. Because if Mama Day say no, everybody say no. There's 18 and 23, and there's 18 and 23. And nobody was going to trifle with Mama Day's because she know how to use it. Her being a direct descendant of Sophia Wade, piled on the fact of springing from the seventh son of a seventh son. Uh-uh. Mama Day say no, everybody say no. No point in making a pile of money to be guaranteed the new moon will see you scratching at fleas you don't have or rolling in the marsh like a mud turtle. And if some was waiting for her to die, they had a long wait. She says she ain't gonna. (laughs) And when you think about it, to show up in one century, make it all the way through the next, and have a toe inching over into the one approaching, is about as close to eternity anybody can come. Well, them developers upped the price and changed the plans, changed the plans and upped the price till it got to be a game with us. Winky bought a motorboat with what they offered him back in 1987, turned it in for a cabin cruiser two years later, and says he expects to be able to afford a yacht with the news that's waiting in the mail this year. Paris went from a new shingle roof to a split-level ranch and is making his way toward adding a swimming pool and greenhouse. But when all the laughing's done it's the principle that remains and we didn't learned that anything coming from beyond the bridge gotta be viewed real real careful. Look what happened when Rima's boy the one with the pear-shaped head came hauling himself back from one of them fancy college's main side, dragging his notebooks and tape recorder in a funny way of curling up his lip and clicking his teeth, all excited and determined to put Willow Springs on the map. We was polite enough. Rima always was a little addle-brained, so you couldn't blame the boy for not remembering that part of Willow Springs's problem was that it got put on some maps right after the war between the states. And then, when he went around asking us about 18 and 23, there weren't nothing to do but take pity on him as he rattled on about ethnography, unique speech patterns, cultural (laughs) preservation, and whatever else he seemed to be getting so much pleasure out of while talking into his little gray machine. (laughs) He was all over the place. What 18 and 23 mean? What 18 and 23 mean? And we all told him the God-honest truth. It was just our way of saying something. Winky was awful, though. He even spit tobacco juice for him. Sat on his porch all day chewing up the boy's Red Devil Premium and spitting so the machine could pick it up. (laughs) There was enough fun in that to take us through the summer and went to take us through the fall and winter, when he had hauled himself back over the sound to wherever he was getting what was supposed to be passing for an education. And he, and he sent everybody he talked to copies of the book he wrote, bound all nice with our name and his signed on the first page. We couldn't hold Rima down, she was so proud. It's a good thing she didn't read it. None of us made it much through the introduction, but that said it all. You see, he had come to the conclusion after extensive field work, ain't never picked a bowl of cotton or a head of lettuce in his life. Rima spoiled him silly. But he done still made it to the conclusion that 18 and 23 wasn't 18 and 23 at all, was really 81 and 32, which just so happened to be the lines of longitude and latitude marking off where Willow Springs sits on the map. And we was just so damn dumb that we turned the whole thing around. (laughs) Not that he called it being dumb, mind you. Called it asserting our cultural identity. (laughs) Inverting hostile social and political parameters. Because, see, being we was brought here as slaves, we had no choice but to look at everything upside down. And then being that we was isolated off here on this island, everybody else in the country went on learning good English and calling things what they really was in the dictionary and all that. Well, we kept on calling things ass-backwards. And he thought that was just so wonderful and marvelous, etc., (laughs) etc. Well, after that crate of books came here, if anybody had any doubts about what them developers was up to, If there was just a tinge of seriousness behind them jokes about the motorboats and swimming pools that could be gotten from selling a piece of lamb, them books squashed it. The people who ran the type of schools that could turn our children into raven lunatics and then put his picture on the back of the book so we couldn't even deny it was him, didn't mean us a speck of good. If the boy wanted to know what 18 and 23 meant, why didn't he just ask? When he was running around here sticking that machine in everybody's face, we were sitting right here, every one of us. And him being one of Remus, we would have obliged him. He could ask asked about the curve in her spine that came from the planting season when the mule broke his leg and she took up the reins and kept pulling the plow with her own back. Winky would've told him about the hot tar that took out the corner of his right eye, the summer we had only seven days to rebuild the bridge so the few crops we had left after the storm could be gotten over before rot set in. Anybody would've carried him through the fields we had to stop farming back in the 80s to take outside jobs, washing cars, carrying groceries, cleaning house, anything, cause it was leave the land or lose it during the silent depression. Had more folks sleeping in city streets and banks foreclosing on farms than in the great depression before that. Nah, he didn't really want to know what 18 and 23 meant or he would have asked. He would have asked right off where Miss Abigail Day was staying. So we could have sent him down the main road to that little yellow house where she used to live and she would have given him a tall glass of ice water or some cinnamon tea, as he heard about peace dying young, then hope and peace again. But there was the child of grace, the grandchild, a girl who went mainside, like him and did real well, was living outside of Charleston now with her husband and two boys, so she visits a lot more often than she did when she was up in New York. And she probably would have pulled out that old photo album so he could have seen some pictures of her grandchild, Coco, and then Coco's mama, Grace. And Miss Abigail flips right through to the beautiful one of Grace laying in her satin-lined coffin. And as she walks him back out to the front porch and points him across the road to a silver trailer where her sister Miranda lives, She tells him to grab up and chew a few sprigs of mint growing at the foot of the steps. It'll help kill his thirst in the hot sun. And if he'd known enough to do that, thirsty or not, he'd know when he got to that silver trailer to stand back a distance, calling Mama, Mama Day, to wait for her to come out and beckon him near. He told her he'd been sent by Miss Abigail and so, more likely than not, she lets him in. And he hears again about the child of grace, her grandniece, who went mainside, like him, and did real well, was living outside of Charleston now with her husband and two boys. So she visits a lot more often than she did when she was up in New York. Coco is like her very own, Mama Day tells him, since she never had no children. And with him carrying that whiff of mint on his breath, she surely would have walked him out to the side yard, facing that patch of dogwood. To say she has to end the visit a little short, cause she has some gardening to do in the other place. And if he'd had the sense to offer to follow her, just a bit of the way. Then and only then, he hears about that summer 14 years ago, when Coco came visiting from New York with her first husband. Yes, she tells him, there was a first husband, a stone city boy. How his name was George, but how Coco left and he stayed. How it was the year of the last big storm that blew her pecan trees down and even caved in the roof of the other place. And she would have stopped him from walking just by a patch of oak she reaches up takes a bit of moss for him to put in them clothes leather shoes they're probably sweating his feet something terrible she tells him and he's to sit on the ground right there to untie his shoes and stick in the moss and then he'd see through the low bush that old graveyard just down the slope and when he looks back up she would have disappeared through the trees but he's to keep pushing the moss in them shoes and go on down to that graveyard where he'll find buried grace, hope, peace, and peace again. Then a little ways off, a groupin' of seven old graves, and a little ways off, seven older again, all circled by them live oaks and hanging moss over a rise from the tip of the sound. Everything he needed to know Could have been heard from that yellow house, to that silver trailer, to that graveyard. Be too late for him to go that route now, since Miss Abigail's been dead for over nine years. Still, there's an easier way. He could just watch Coco any one of these times she comes in from Charleston. She goes straight to Miss Abigail's to air out the rooms and unpack her bags. Then she's across the road to call out at Mama Day who's going to come to the door of the trailer and wave as Coco heads on through the patch of dogwoods to that oak grove. She stops and puts a bit of moss in her open toe sandals, then goes on past those graves to a spot just down the rise toward the sound, a little bit south of that circle of oaks. And if he was patient and stayed off a little ways, he'd realize she was there to meet up with her first husband, so they could talk about that summer 14 years ago when she left but he stayed and as her and George are there together for a good two hours or so, neither one saying a word Rema's boy could have heard from them everything there was to tell about 18 and 23. But on second thought, someone who didn't know how to ask, wouldn't know how to listen. And he could have listened to them the way you've been listening to us right now. Think about it. Ain't nobody really talking to you. We're sitting here in Willow Springs, and you're God knows where. It's August, 1999. Ain't but a slim chance it's the same season where you are. Uh Uh-huh, listen. Really listen this time. The only voice is your own. But you done just heard about the legend of Sophia Wade, though nobody here breathes her name. You done heard it the way we know it, sitting on our porches and shelling June peas, quieting the midnight cough of a baby, taking apart the engine of a car. You done heard it without a single living soul really saying a word. Pity though, Rima's boy, couldn't listen like you to Coco and George down by them oaks, or he would have left here with quite a story. Thank you.
0: Gloria Naylor was born in Manhattan in 1950, sharing Virginia Woolf's birthday, which also happened to be the very day African-American writer Gwendolyn Brooks received the Pulitzer Prize for poetry. Naylor's parents had migrated to New York from Mississippi in search of better prospects, and she grew up particularly encouraged by her mother, a telephone operator, to read and write as much as she could. Eventually, her efforts led her to study English at Brooklyn College and African American Studies at Yale, where thesis work and creative work combined and led eventually to her second published novel, following her first and most famous, The Women of Brewster Place. A one-time missionary for the Jehovah's Witnesses, Naylor wrote fiction and taught for decades, at places including Boston University, Cornell, and NYU. Gloria Naylor died in 2016, age 66. Thanks to Brilliance Audio and Houghton Mifflin Harcourt for allowing us permission to use the audio for this episode of Gloria Naylor reading live on stage in 1988 as part of the International Readings at Harborfront series, now called TIFA. And as always, thanks to TIFA, the Toronto International Festival of Authors, for allowing us access to their archives. Find out more at festivalofauthors.ca. Writers Off the Page, 40 Years of TIFA, is a year-long podcast series that celebrates 40 years of the Toronto International Festival of Authors. It's produced by the Toronto Public Library. The executive producer is Gregory McCormick. This episode was produced by Gregory McCormick and me, Randy Boyagoda, with technical support from George Penayotu and Michelle DeMarco marketing support from Tanya Oleksik, and research support from Marcella Van Run. For more about Writers Off the Page, 40 Years of Tifa, visit tpl.ca slash podcasts, where you will find links to the books mentioned in each episode, and links to other relevant materials in TPL's collections. Music is by Yuka. I'm Randy Boyagoda, and we'll be back soon with another episode of Writers Off the Page, 40 Years of Tifa.